Good day. Isn't that what bonjour means anyway? Of course, okay. if, if that's really what it means, then uh, why do they have bonsoir, which means good evening? They do. They use it whenever it's not Be- day anymore. Because the night is the time for love and deserves <laughs> its own word. <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This show is sponsored by Heroku Postgres. They're the largest provider of Postgres databases in the world and provide the ability for you to fork and follow your database just like your code. There's easy sharing through data clips or just for your data, and to date they have never lost a byte of data. So go and sign up at postgres.heroku.com. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMind by going to jetbrains.com ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 106 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Katrina Owen. Hello from the laundry room. Avdi Grimm. Hello from the basement. Josh Susser. Hello from the office nook. I'm Charles Maxwood from the upstairs bedroom office. And we have a special guest, and that's Jeff Atwood. Yeah, hi, everybody. So, Jeff, can you introduce yourself for those who don't know who you are? Sure, absolutely. So, I most people know me for a couple of reasons. I'm going to list those reasons. Uh, one is I have this blog, Coding Horror, that I've written since 2004 that got surprisingly popular. And then the other big thing that I did was in 2008... I formed a business partnership with Joel Spolsky, and we built Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange, a network of Q&A sites for, for programmers and then larger technical topics. And then in uh, this year, we, we launched the project Discourse, which is a uh, forum software reimagining reboot. So those are sort of my main things that people might know me for. Yeah, oh, cool. I said this on the pre-call, but God bless you for Stack Overflow. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been hugely successful, and uh, I feel like it really mel- met a need for a site, you know, of the community, by the community, that was a place to get good information, because that was our frustration. The, the original reason we launched Stack Overflow was out of frustration of, as a programmer, when you do searches, you would get kind of terrible search results. You know, you'd get a lot of forums, which had a huge set of problems. You'd get a lot of experts exchange, which was everybody hated pretty much universally. So there just wasn't sort of a good central clearinghouse for community specific to programmers. When you, you know, you had a specific question, you wanted it answered, and you didn't want to necessarily debate, you know, Java versus .NET again. <laughs> uh, that, that was the goal, and it worked really well for that, so I'm, I'm happy about that. Well, it's definitely been a, a significant resource for the community, so kudos. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And but But we asked you to come on today to talk about Discourse, which is the new Shiny. Yeah, so the, the impetus with Discourse was when we started Stack Overflow, we looked at forums as, as an exemplar of, okay, this is what we're building. And then we quickly realized we weren't actually building a forum. We were building a Q&A system. And Q&A systems are really different from forums because Q&A systems aren't really about discussion. If you do it right, a lot of Q&A sites do it wrong. But if you do it the right way, all the answers are about the question. Right? Because that's the purpose of the question. You come in and you have ask a question because you need the answer. And you don't necessarily want to engage in a lot of related discussion about, you know, what's wrong with the world, Israel and Palestine, Ruby versus .NET. You know, programmers love to fight about this stuff, as does everyone. And it's fun. 
but it's, you know, bike shed type discussions. It's like, can we avoid all the bike shed discussions and stick to let's solve the problem at hand in a way that makes sense? And there can be more than one way to do it. There's usually multiple answers to any Stack Overflow question, and they're all, sometimes many of them are good. So there's more than one way to do it, but we had a suppressed discussion. So when I came out of Stack Exchange, because I had uh, twin baby girls who are now one year old, and I had Henry, who's now four years old, and there were just other changes going on. The company was getting really large, and we'd kind of solved our primary mission, which was to displace Experts Exchange, which everybody hated, and to become a great resource for programmers, and that was well, well underway. So it, it just sort of made sense for me to take some time off and think about what the next thing was to do. And I was really surprised coming back in, in 2012 when it came out in February. I, I looked at forums again because we had stopped looking, realizing that we're not building a forum. I completely stopped looking at forum software. But then people would come to me, like startups would occasionally come to me and ask me for advice about what they were doing. And the first thing I would say to them is, well, why are you asking me? Why aren't you asking your own community what they think of what you're doing and where you're going? And uh, that seemed to me like a very obvious way to go for feedback, because I probably don't use the thing that you're going to ask me about. I'm probably not in the community for your thing or the audience, right? So why are you asking me? I mean, I'm, I'm ostensibly an expert on something, but I don't use your stuff. So why not ask the people that are using your stuff? And then the smarter ones say, oh, that's a great idea. We should set up a place for our community to come together and figure out if we even have a community. And if you don't have a community, then nobody cares. And that's your problem. Fix that. <laughs> but doesn't anyone <laughs> yeah. care about your thing? That's your problem, not you know what I think about it. That's why nobody cares about your thing. So assuming you can get a community to materialize, you know, what does that look like? You know, where do we go? What software do we install? How do we do this? How do we have a, a clubhouse for people to go to talk about this thing that we do? And I said, well, that's a good question. Let me let me look and see what's out there and get back to you. And, and all the options you have are really bad. Like, I <laughs> was shocked that... The, oh, none what's of the wrong with PHPBB? <sighs> so many things. Mostly... <laughs> Just start with the name. <laughs> I go from there. Yeah, right. So the, I have this whole, you know, sort of PHP problem with PHP in terms of its, its attained ubiquity, which is great, but it's not really a great tool. It's just used because it's there, not because it's actually good. And that's not a great state of affairs. But there were no forum softwares that I felt comfortable recommending in good conscience. Like the, I, I would feel bad. Say you have a product, right? I'm like, oh, cool. Like this happened to me. Let me give you an actual example. So there was this game, I think it was called Way. It was this weird little indie game where it would match you with a random person. And you were on the top, and they were on the bottom, or vice versa. It doesn't matter. And together, you had to solve puzzles. But the game didn't really tell you what to do. The other person had to sort of tell you what to do. And they would they could make gestures. They could make faces. They could sort of... You could communicate in the game with the other person and try to figure out these puzzles. And I, I played for a while with this other random person. And I was like, wow, this is really neat. Like, I'm, I'm figuring this stuff out. He's showing me how to do stuff. And, and it was really cool. And then eventually he rage quit because I got stuck and I felt really like a bad person because I couldn't figure out this puzzle. And the guy's like, no, do this, do this, do this. And he's gesturing with his little avatar. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. And he like quits the game. And I was like, damn it. You know, <laughs> I wasn't good enough. I made the other person rage quit. And I was like, this is a really neat experience. And so I went and, and went to the game's website. And of course, they had a forum link. And then I click on the forum. And then, you know, I'm sort of mentally playing sad trombone because the forum just doesn't work for me. Because the first thing I see when I go to the forum is a list of categories of like, you know, categorization. Like, which category of thing do you want to look at? And I was like, well, I don't even know. I don't know what I want to look at because I don't know anything about this game. I don't even know what's going on here. And you're already asking me to make a decision that I don't have any information about how to proceed, right? I can just randomly click on stuff. 
And that sucked, right? Like immediately it sucks. Like out of the gate, it sucks. Like the first experience is, this is terrible. <laughs> Why are you doing this to me? And then clicking through to the discussion is, is also bad because mostly it's just so noisy. Like PHPVB and a lot of typical forms are just, they, they dump a ton of crap in the browser page so that the actual content is, is, is tiny. It's like this tiny little rectangle of content buried in hundreds of links and, you know, dancing avatars and God knows what else, but the software out of the box. Uh, is burying the lead, right? It's burying all the content and a bunch of crap that I've, I've never cared about. I've used this one forum for about 10 years, and I swear it's vBulletin, and I swear that I've clicked on maybe five of the links on all the screens in all that 10-year time. <laughs> so it's like, why are these other links here? If I can use it for 10 years and not care about any of this other stuff that's on the screen, why is it there? You know, like, what is going on? Like, I don't even understand what's happening. And then the other problem is this stuff hasn't changed. Like, I've used this form for 10 years. It materially looks the same as it did 10 years ago. What other part of the web looks identical in a decade, you know? I mean, I don't think forums are so well done that they don't need to change at all in 10 years. I mean, this is the same beef I have with a site like Reddit, where Reddit visibly hasn't changed since 2005. And I think that's strategically a huge error. I think there's yeah, tons of so ways pretty. to well. <laughs> it, It's a lot of things, but I would not use the word pretty <laughs> to describe it. So that's sort of some of the thinking that, that we came in. It was like, well, you know, this is a problem. Like, I, I love forums, and I continue to get really good search results to forums that have amazing information that's just buried in this this terrible, terrible software. And I want there to be a free open source option that's actually good, that I can recommend to people and feel good about. Like, you can deploy this, and you will feel good. The example I use, it's sort of like walking into sort of a, a seedy, dingy, bad neighborhood with boarded up windows, and you walk into a store, and you know, the lights are kind of flickering. <laughs> And they have products there, right? Like, oh, they have Tide or whatever it is you need. But you just don't feel good there. It's like it's not clean. It's not well lit. It, there's kind of sketchy people around. It's kind of a weird neighborhood. There's a lot of tattoo parlors. There's a lot of pawn shops. And then you walk down the street. It's like, hey, it's a Target, right? I know Target. Target is nice. Target has a nice, you know, it's clean. It's well lit. I have a, I have a good feeling when I go in there. They may or may not have what I want. But I don't go there and feel bad about myself as a person, right? So we're trying to build more targets and less sort of like seedy, dingy, weird neighborhood corner stores. And, and what's wrong with Walmart? Uh, <laughs> well, I didn't say Walmart. <laughs> yeah, but I did. Yeah. Okay, so, so that sounds like a, a great set of goals and motivations. I guess the next question is, how's it going? Uh, it's going great in terms of uh, we've had tons of... So the way we measure success is, first of all, the way I've always measured success in Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange is like, how do I feel about the pages we're putting on the internet? If I go to a random page on a Stack Exchange site, it doesn't have to be Stack Overflow, it could be any network site, because we have a, Stack Exchange has a huge network of sites. Am I embarrassed to be associated with this page? Does this page make me happy or sad as a consumer of the internet, as, a, as an internet citizen? And I really use that same benchmark for, for discourse. I mean, there's a lot of other things we can look at that I'll get into, but that's the core one. It's like, how do I feel about the pages we're putting on the internet? Is these good, bad, meh, you know, what, what are they? And I think I've seen, we, we've done one partner. We want to do three partners. Right now we've done one of three. The one is, uh, you can go to uh, howtogeek.com. And uh, forums, it's forum or forums.howtogeek.com. And HowToGeek himself, who's been a great friend and has really helped us in this initiative, he's really interested in forum software, has said himself that like, this is, the, his forum now is a huge improvement over his old forum. And what he means by that is that the topics are better, the discussion is better, the type of people is attracting is better. 
essentially when you put in a target, you sort of get better clientele <laughs> than at the pawn shop, right? Uh, and, and even though it's the same basic conversations that are going on, you're just generating pages that are sort of of slightly higher quality. And, and that's because the software looks better, feels better, works better. It feels better to participate. It feels better to walk into a target than it does a pawn shop uh, in terms of the interactions you're going to have and the way you're going to uh, approach the topic. And the other thing that works for us is that form software is broken in so many ways that the bar is really low. Like, really basic stuff. Like, for example, and, and again, none of this is rocket science, but I'm just going to give you some examples. When On Discourse, when you start typing your post, we auto-save drafts, like, automatically on the server. So you can just type, 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 you know, close your browser, and then come back to a totally different computer in a different city and come into that topic. And then it says, hey, you have a draft at the bottom, and you can expand it and reopen it. And almost no form software does this. The, the, the other thing that we do is mentions. Like, if we quote someone... We reply to your post, or I even mention your name in passing. It's like, oh, at Joe Smith said blah, blah, blah. We notify that person that you were talking with them. So virtually no form software does this. It's extremely rare. And mm-hmm. this is, to me, is the most essential part of form software. It's all about conversations. It's all about back and forth conversations about any topic. And, you know, if you don't know people are talking to you, what kind of experience can you really have? So yeah. the bar is really low, which helps. And then... We've seen from the, the first partner, and there's another big partner coming up, I can't say who it is, but it's a site you've probably been to and have heard of. People will see that, oh, wow, this really is a better experience. You know, like fundamentally, they're getting better discussions, more participation, less trolling, all that stuff. I, I think that, uh, you know, my metric is signal to noise ratio. And, you know, what you were talking about, like notifying someone that somebody responded to them, that's definitely a very important signal. And it's much lower noise than just like getting an email anytime anyone posts anything on anything. Yeah. The the other thing is, is when you were talking about all the extra stuff that's on the page, I mean, even if you took all that away from, I've used vBulletin, PHPBB, I've used a couple of other ones out there. Even if you take all of that garbage away and just have the conversations, the conversations themselves aren't set up to be easily followable and, and re- readable. And so, you know, a reasonable person doesn't even know what, what they're looking for. And if they do know what they're looking for, it's really hard to find. So I'm pretty excited about seeing where that can go. Definitely. And I think you have to realize what the goal is. So on Stack Exchange, we're really, really strict. The point that, you know, every day someone's complaining that we're dicks and we close questions and we don't let people do what they want to do on the Internet. And there's a reason for that. It's the same reason people complain they can't get into community college, they can't get into Harvard, they can't get into Yale. It's like, well, you have standards. It's like, well, we have standards here. We have certain standards that we expect people to meet before they show up on campus. Now, Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange are really just community colleges. Their, their standards are not that high. But you're comparing it with the Internet where the expectation is I can do whatever I want, wherever I want, however I want, because ain't nobody going to stop me, man. We're libertarians here. We can do whatever. And... You know, there's just this weird mentality of, of I can do what I want because I do what I want on the internet. And I'm like, well, you can't, you can do that, but you can't do that here. But the, the reason we do that, it's like, why do they do that? Well, why does Yale have the standards they have? Why do community colleges have the standards that they have? It's because they want people to learn, right? Like you come there because they don't have rules because they love rules. They have rules because they want people to learn. And this is how you learn. If everybody can interrupt a class by saying, Hey, it's time for a beer bash. Let's post 50 law cats all of a sudden. All of a sudden, you're not really learning anything. All of a sudden, you're just having fun, right? Which is great, but that's not really learning. <laughs> so that's why you have the rules you have, is to to make sure that everybody is 
really learning stuff as much as possible. And that's not really the goal on a forum. I mean, it can be, depending on their forums are, you know, it's, it's a rainbow system. That's why the Discourse logo itself has a rainbow in it, is because it's a rainbow system. Meaning, who knows what the goal is for your clubhouse that you're going to set up for your whatever it is, your product, your team, your, you know, your regional area. I don't know what your goals are. and I don't need to know what your goals are. At Stack Exchange, the goals are learning. And we're very vocal about that. It's like, we're here to learn stuff, man. If you don't learn stuff, then, you know, don't come here, right? That's not the purpose of this place. But on a forum, you could say, hey, the goal is really to just hang out and, you know, be friends and, and have some fun and post some topics and talk back and forth. You know, it's like a party. It's really like having a party at your house. And some par- parties are different. Some parties, you might learn stuff. You might meet some really interesting people and have interesting conversations. And some parties, you might just, you know, get really drunk and make fart jokes all the time. And that's okay, depending on... Yeah, but yeah, but I stopped inviting David to those parties, so... <laughs> <laughs> you heard his that's, feelings. That's not, that's not fair of me to dig on him when he's not here. Yeah. Sorry, David. <laughs> um, so... Okay, Jeff, that, that sounds good. Uh, since we have a little limited time today, let, let's talk about the, um, about the code in the project. Oh, I was so going to derail you that way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, derail. Haha. <laughs> so, uh, it, uh, sound cool? Sure. Okay. okay. So you did a, um, a blog post recently where you talked about your decision to use Ruby and Rails for the project. And that was actually what got me most interested in the project. Because I knew that you um, you don't really have a background as a Ruby guy. You do .NET, I believe, right? Yes. And yeah, uh, Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange are all .NET. Yeah. So so um, let's let's talk for a minute about you know why Ruby and you know have have you been um, uh, enjoying that you chose Ruby or regretting it? Well, there were three real choices as I broke it down because the goal of the project was to be open source and free in every sense of the word. I mean, we are a venture capital backed company, which is I mean, fantastic. I love that there's venture capitalists actually willing to back companies that mm-hmm. say, you know, hey, we're open source, you know, and we're going to try to make money in the same way that WordPress makes money. But we're fundamentally going to be open source. Everybody can get this. It's available to everyone. You can just install it. You don't have to ask us any permission. You don't have to pay us any money. You can just do what you want to do because it's your clubhouse. That's the point of the project. I don't think a forum project can succeed that isn't open source for that reason because for example, if I went to someone really famous and said, oh, you must join our network and we'll give you our software, but you have to, you know, sign over, you know, rights to us, they would never do it because the type of people that can deploy forums are quite frankly famous people for the most part, ones that get big, and they're not going to give you anything. So we just give it away, right? Like, oh, no problem here. Take it, make it part of your empire, do what you will with it. And that's great. So everything had to serve that goal. So it had to be a language that is, you know, very friendly to open source and, and, you know, freely available, freely downloadable. And our options were Ruby, Python, and uh, Node. Now, initially, I got excited about Node because this thing at Wood's Law, which is that any application that can be written in JavaScript will be written in JavaScript. And I still believe <laughs> that JavaScript is still going to become, it's already incredibly dominant. I mean, if you look at the top GitHub projects, most of them are JavaScript projects. The majority, the large majority are JavaScript projects now of the top most starred repositories or what have you. So that's enticing because you don't have to switch gears like you write JavaScript on the client in the browser and then uh, you write JavaScript on the server. But I looked at Node and I talked to a number of people about Node and I feel like Node is still where Ruby was in 2004, maybe even a little earlier, that none of the significant frameworks have really emerged yet and there's going to be a lot of change. So I felt like if we wrote it in Node, 
nobody could really and the other thing that was a big warning sign to me in node is nobody could tell me even how to structure a large project in node <laughs> like everybody's like i don't know <laughs> nobody really knows how to build a large project in node yet uh that was like a huge warning flag to me and i think node is going to be great in four to five years once all that stuff is sort of figured out but that just felt too bleeding edge i felt like we would have to rewrite the app come from scratch in two years if we'd used node inevitably and that was not attractive to me uh, so then it came down to Python versus Ruby. And what decided that, honestly, was the person I found, Robin Ward, who wrote this game Forum Wars, which is a game about forum culture written in Ruby that had a forum attached to it. So you had a guy who had written a game all about forum culture and had run a forum on a game about forum culture. <laughs> and he wrote all that stuff. And I was like, well, this is a guy who understands forums as well as I mean, anyone in the world, he has like a PhD in forum culture and he's, all, he's done Ruby since 2006. So that definitely clinched the decision. You know, that made sense based on the skills that we had. And I've always liked Ruby. I, uh, I, I mentioned in that post that Steve Yegi had, you know, who I respect deeply and I think is an amazing polyglot developer. I'm not really a polyglot developer. I mean, I dabble in other languages, but really I've always been sort of a basic slash, well, I did a little Pascal. <laughs> um, but I've always been a basic slash C sharp slash, you know, simple languages kind of guy, simple stuff, not complicated. And, but Steve knows, I mean, he's tried everything under the sun and he, he, in 2000, what was it, 2007, he, uh, sort of examined a bunch of languages and walked people through them and said Ruby was his favorite. He felt like it combined the best aspects of a lot of other languages and was just the, he, he, he had a lot of praise for it. And praise from Steve Yegi to me is like gold. Like I pretty much, uh, accept his opinions as as fact for the most part, <laughs> unless they're crazy, and and that always stuck with me, and I always wanted to come back to Ruby. So I was happy to to, to make that decision and, and come back to Ruby. And certainly, we've had plenty of contributions. I mean, you can look at our commit graph on GitHub. It's GitHub.com/discourse/discourse because the organization is discourse, the project is discourse, and we've had lots and lots of uh, contributions. And the number of gems and libraries we have access to is just huge. And that's been great coming from the .NET world where you just don't have as many li libraries to choose from. Like, for example, just HTML parsing, there's like, what, Nokogiri and uh, that thing that Y did, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, that are both excellent, right? Like, there's two excellent, awesome parsers for HTML. Yeah, H Hpercot. And then there's probably a third one that's also pretty good. But in the .NET world, you're lucky to, there's probably one. <laughs> <laughs> and you probably won't like it, right? Like a lot of the .NET libraries tend to be kind of Java-y, <laughs> which is not good. Like they, there's a lot of copying of sort of what Java did, you know, philosophically. And I, I don't like that. I think languages sort of pick their own battles and write things their own way rather than just aping. Like, you know, the, the, the canonical example is like, what is the name of that, that logging library that everybody uses? I can't remember the name of it. But like logging itself is just, I don't know. It's just, it just, stuff just gets blindly copied. And you, instead of a J, J log, it's N log, you know? <laughs> and I always dislike that. And, and it's nice coming into Ruby where, believe me, everybody has their own ideas about how to do things, maybe a little too much in some ways. <laughs> uh, but it's refreshing, right? It's refreshing because people aren't coming in with preconceived notions of, oh, we copied Java and then we do this. And, you know, it's just a much more vibrant ecosystem and yeah. there's a lot more choice. Hey, I have a question about the um, the open source licensing. I mean, you, you know, you just sure. said you want it to be open source and freely shareable, et cetera, and um, you opted for the GPL. Yes, we did. And, and so, you know, in the Ruby community, uh, like the MIT license is the most common one that gets used. 
and GPL is fairly uncommon. So um, I think that might be people may not really understand what that's about. So well, we kind of looked. WordPress is kind of our spirit animal. You have to understand because we want to do what WordPress did for the most part. We don't want to start in two thousand four like they did. We want to start with like the two thousand eight uh, WordPress and and not revisit all the early bad decisions. But their GPL, Drupal is GPL. Um, a lot of really popular open source stuff started as GPL, and it hasn't really, I mean, it's worked for them. And, mm-hmm. and we wanted to sort of follow in the footsteps of the champions, the people that had made this work and mm-hmm. had actually made businesses. Because the goal really is, you know, we're venture capital backed, and we want to be able to pay ourselves, right? Like there's, so the, right now, there, it's a fairly small team. There's, there's me, Robin in Canada. I'm in California. Robin's in Canada. Sam is in Australia. That's really the key team. And we have some sort of part-time helpers who are, I mean, really, really good. Like our assistant man is amazing in particular. But, you know, those are the, the founders. And we want to be able to build the business around this so we can at least support ourselves to continue developing it. And certainly once you involve venture capital guys, they have this idea that eventually it's going to be a big project, potentially as big as WordPress. So GPL seemed like a good way to achieve that, right? Like that specifically was our goal, to eventually have a sustainable business. Like we're going to start charging money for hosting. We'll never charge you money for the code because that's not the model. We don't want to do that. We want you to have, like say you're a nonprofit. Here, here you go. Have the code. Go set it up. You know, have a great time. Uh, but if you want a hosted experience, then we want to be the best host in the world for discourse. And we want to have a nice network of, of popular forums that we can publicize and cross-promote and make sure everybody knows about them and just get some great conversations going, right? Like we want to be the ultimate party, if you will. <laughs> we want to be a house like a mansion. We want to be sort of the Playboy Mansion. <laughs> uh, maybe without all the, the sex and stuff, but, you know, just a place where a party is going on all the time and, and, and all the different rooms are different. That's sort of the goal for, for discourse. I had this idea. Now, discourse is a fancy word. When you think discourse, you think, you know, men in 18th century suits standing in a room, you know, giving speeches. <laughs> and and it is that. Like, I mean, I want substantive discussion to go on. One of the key things I learned looking at this project and looking at forums was that in order for people to be in the same room and have conversations that matter, they have to be having fun. They have to be uh, achieving some level of entertainment to even have the conversation occur and get those people in the same room. So it turns out that fun is a really big component of what forums do. Because if you're not having fun, why would you even go, right? Like, what's the point of going there? If it's just this dry <laughs> academic place where you have these really serious, important discussions, you know, that, that's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. So it needs to be fun. So we've kind of sort of embraced this idea of the mechanics need to be fun, the gameplay should be fun, the core, what I call the core gameplay needs to be fun. <laughs> And it needs to be entertaining to some degree. And then the side effect of that is every, you know, 10th or 50th page will be a really good page that will show up in your Google search results and actually help you with something. Uh, that's a natural side effect of these conversations going on. I, I want to jump in and ask, since it's written in Ruby, a lot of our listeners are people who are capable of, uh, of contributing to discourse. Um, I'm assuming you're welcoming con- contributions, but you also have this uh, contribution license agreement, which isn't something that I've, you know, it's something that I've encountered before with, say, the Apache Foundation and a few other projects out there. Mostly, from what I understand, uh, they set them up so that you can protect the GPL nature of what people are writing. In other words, basically, it says that what people contribute to the source code is owned by the project and distributed with the GPL license. and you know, you assert that what you're giving can be given away. Are there other reasons that you're going with a CLA? 
The main reason is so that we, we retain an underlying license to the code so we can, we can sell licenses to, to big companies, like they, say companies that are allergic to GPL but want to use discourse internally or what have you, um, we retain the right to resell it to large companies under different licensing terms because mm-hmm. we retain uh, right to all the code that was submitted. Obviously, the code that we wrote, we have an underlying right to, but the code that everyone else writes, we also need an underlying right to that. Now, the risk there is that we could, in theory, this would never happen for the record, we could take all the code and say, you know what, no, it's no longer open source. You know, we would throw it behind a paywall or what have you, and then there would be some, some version after which it's no longer open source. So that's the risk versus reward. You have to balance, like, what are the odds that you think the discourse project is going to do that to you? Now, to, to ameliorate this concern, in the CLA sign-up document, we put in another point, which is like, we, as long as we, the founders, are at the company, we commit to you, the contributor, that we will always strive to have the code be available as open source, no matter what happens. And then if something happens to us, we will hand it over to the Free Software Foundation or another organization that can guarantee those rights to you. Now, I can't guarantee that I will be at the company forever because who knows? I mean, life happens, right? But as long as the founders are at the company, we make that pledge. And the pledge is as good as the founders. So, I mean, it, it's a belief system thing. You have to sort of believe in, in us. Do, are we doing the right thing? Do you, do you think we'll do the right thing? And, and the philosophy of the project. So, I mean, that, that's what you have to balance. But the reason it's there is because we plan to make money really two main ways and possibly a third way. The, one of the main ways is, of course, hosting. Give us a credit card, $19 a month or whatever it is, and you would now have a discourse forum. Poof, you didn't have to do any work of setting up the project. You have it up and running in, you know, 10 minutes or five minutes or whatever it is. Uh, that's probably the main way. And then the other way is, again, big companies coming to us saying, hey, we want to use discourse, but, you know, GPL, we don't know. At, at Big Co or Acme Widgets, we can't use GPL. No problem. Give us a big check and we'll relicense the code to you and you can use it under, you know, your own proprietary license that never needs to see the light of the day. The third way is advertising, but that's really far out. I mean, we reserve the right to potentially do advertising on some of the hosted sites, depending on the, 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 the payment scheme or whatever you signed up for. But I don't know when or if that will actually happen. So one other question I have for you regarding this is that there's another company out here that I've done some things with, and they have their own open source version, and then they have their proprietary version that, you know, that they actually sell to people as a software as a service. Do you see discourse kind of uh, diverging at some point so that most of the core stuff is in the open source version, but you do have a few things that you apply to your hosted versions that people can't I, get in the open source version? I really hate that model. I really hate that a lot. So personally, no, I don't. I mean, as long as I'm in the company, I don't see that happening because I hate that model. Like I hate the, you know, who does this? And and I like vanilla and I'm not saying this in a negative way, but one thing I don't like about vanilla is they, they use this model where their open source version is good, but then the, the proprietary version you pay for has all these other features and every blog entry they have, there's somebody bitching about, Oh, I can't use this feature. You know, uh, you, you know, it's not fair. This is not right. And they're, kind of right like i think this is a kind of a bullshit thing to do to your 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 users and your your customers to have this you know haves and have nots like oh there's the special version that's really good and then but you pay us extra money for that i think the entire principle of open source is there's one version the awesome version and that's the version that you get and i like that that's why i think one of the huge advantages of open source is you don't have to think about all that crap of like, oh, I pay this money and I unlock these special bits that give me these special features. I mean, Microsoft does that and it always drove me nuts. Like, we installed server software and we were like, oh, only 32 gigabytes of our memory is available. Why is that? Because the server has 48. I was like, oh, we didn't pay for the bit that flips that lets you use all the memory on mm-hmm. the server. 
And I hate that. I think that's lame. You know, I understand why they do it. I understand like they're capturing consumer surplus. You, every company does this. It's crazy, but it's, it's the way of the world. Like when a customer comes up, you basically look at them and say, are they rich or are they poor? If they're rich, you charge them more. <laughs> and if they're poor, you charge them less. And that's just the way the world works. I mean, every company does this to some degree, whether it's with salespeople or with explicit policies. And or pro-level I- products. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think one of the huge advantages of open source is you don't, you get the awesome version every time. Yeah. The, the, the company that I'm uh, talking about, the other thing that they've done is they built the awesome version first and then they sort of ripped out or crippled the pieces that they, in the open source version that they didn't want people to have. And so sometimes you get weird stuff because, you know, it's, it's, there are integration points there that, that integrate to things that don't exist anymore. Well, yeah, you also forked the code in some degree, right? Yeah. You've created two versions, and that's obviously just historically a terrible path to go down because it leads to so much trauma. Yeah. You know, we have actually, we had a little bit of a fork of discourse early on. It wasn't like a serious problem, but it was getting it up and running on Heroku. And what we tried to do mightily is pull in all the patches so that we could run on Heroku like in the main branch without special weirdness because we don't want to have multiple forks. To support. We want one version, the awesome version, and then over time, of course, it does get complicated. You have to essentially have a plug-in model to accommodate the vast number of needs that your audience has. And we haven't gotten there yet. I mean, we have strong plans to have a really good plug-in model. Uh, but for now, you know, the goal is definitely how you know, have one main branch and then keep all the, the really cool features on that. And we haven't gotten to bloat stage yet. I'm sure we will. <laughs> uh, but we haven't quite gotten there yet. So yeah. I, I'm going to keep pushing things along because I know we're short on time. I have one other question, and that has more to do with the Ruby community. Um, I see this project as something that's going to draw in more people to Ruby because it's a high-profile project. It's written in Ruby on Rails. But what kinds of things are you looking to give back to the Ruby community? Well, we've already done a number of like performance patches. Like Sam, in particular, is very gung-ho about performance. And there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. So a surprising amount of low-hanging fruit with performance in Ruby. In Ruby like or one, Rails or both? Well, well rail, Rails, mostly, honestly. A little bit Ruby, but a lot of Rails. Rails has gotten, I hate to say, a little bit bloated. <laughs> um, but No it's, it's one will argue with you about that. Yeah, it, it's fixable, right? Like, I think a lot of the performance things we've seen, like, we can actually go in, like, you know... Well, to be fair, like, let me compare our experience at Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange. We occasionally ran into bugs in .NET. It wasn't very common. It's much more common for us to run into bugs in Ruby because, you know, it's open source and you'll let it all hang out. And that's fine. I don't really have any moral judgment on which is better because, you know, it doesn't matter. You're getting a very, very different experience from those two. But in the cases when we did run into .NET bugs, like, there was no way to, to, to get unblocked, right? Like, we had to talk to Microsoft and see what they could do and go through their process. And generally, they were very friendly to us because we were a big .NET app and they wanted us to be happy. Uh, so we had a good experience. But it's even better when you can just go in and just rip shit out and just fix it yourself and then and then contribute it back as a, as a, as a pull request to Rails. And Sam's done this a couple times and, and his pull requests go in and he's always like, yes, I did it. It's like, we, we fixed the thing for everybody, right? Like, we did it, right? Like, we... <laughs> made the experience better for everyone. And that's a great feeling, and, and we love that. And I think that's definitely a little bit missing from the .NET world. I mean, you, it's, it's much harder to do that uh, and, and make that stick and, and make it work. So a variation of, of Chuck's uh, probing line here. Uh, this is a big project already. You know, I'm looking at the models directory, and there's you know scores of models here and you know a couple dozen controllers and you know, a lot of stuff in the project already. So it's clear you guys are, are making good progress. But um, as I look around, and I think this is common of large Rails projects, 
is that the bigger they get, the more they diverge from sort of the standard conventional ways of doing things in Rails. And I just, you know, opened a model file at random and, you know, found uh, code that was composing SQL fragments as strings, which is, um, you know, something that most Rails developers try and avoid. They want to work at the API level in Ruby rather than at the, you know, SQL fragment strings level. And I totally understand that there's trade-offs and there's good reasons for doing that. I'm curious if you guys are thinking about, we want to have this project be something that is easy for experienced Rails developers to jump in on, and it operates like a Rails application. And and their, their intuition that they've developed over you know, months or years of working with Rails is applicable. And uh, sure, no, th- that makes sense. And I, I think our our background, at least Sam and I, have a background of coming from Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange, and even on .NET, which is let me be clear, .NET is dramatically faster than Ruby. Like it's not even close. Now, speed is not the only reason to do things. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of factors in performance, believe me. But when it comes down to just building a page, I mean, it is order of magnitude faster. And even in .NET, like there was a huge cost. We were using uh, Link to SQL, which is another mi- problem Microsoft has. Is they build all this stuff, and then some of it just gets abandoned, and nobody can update it. And so anyway, Link to SQL was this great feature where oh, you stop dealing with raw SQL strings. You know, you have like magical .NET keywords that produce you know SQL behind the scenes, but you don't have to touch any of that nasty, ugly SQL. You don't have to think about SQL. You don't have to learn SQL. It's just magical .NET keywords that do the right thing. And we were like, okay, let's try this, and you know, we figured for simple stuff, it would work, right? Like, you know, just, we just need to grab a user record. All the fields, we need all the fields. It's simple. Just go grab one user record. And in Link to SQL, we found huge performance problems. Like, we weren't really clear. Some of the magic that we're doing at the scale that Stack Overflow got to, even for simple queries, was massive amount of overhead. Like, mm-hmm. it was really slowing down the app. And eventually, we doubled down on this thing called Dapper that Sam built, which was essentially reinvesting in, in raw SQL, saying, look, if you want to select a record from the user table, do select star from user table. And and that was our background. So I haven't, Sam's done a lot more benchmarking than I have, but I think what we've seen is for simple queries, active record does work well. Um, but for some of the weirder queries that you run, it's it's you can get into a lot of performance weirdnesses where you're giving up a ton of performance. So I would say for those sections where you're seeing raw SQL, we welcome pull requests as long as performance doesn't degrade, right? We want performance to stay at the same level because we're really sort of gung-ho about building a really fast app. Like there's all this data out there and we believe in this deeply at Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange, like above all else, be fast. It's like the Uh quicker the dead, right? And that's that's trickier in Ruby than isn't done yeah, so have have you put any performance tests in your test suite so that contributors can actually tell if they're improving or or degrading well, performance? Uh, one thing I want to build is actually just a generic benchmark system within Discourse that actually uses Discourse to benchmark. So when people deploy Discourse mm-hmm. to a server, they might have a bad experience because it's an underspec server, and we don't know that. So I want to have like essentially Discourse. You know, once you deploy your Discourse forum, like forum.example.com/benchmark. And that would actually run a bunch of sort of discourse style code and run it through its paces and actually give you a number about how fast you are. And then we would actually show, oh, on our servers, which are, you know, right now the fastest Xeons uh, you can get, we have this number. That's what you should aspire to. Like certainly what we've seen in, in building out servers is that Ruby is really sensitive to IO, like, una- like crazily so. Like switching to SSD is, is an, an enormously big win in oh, Ruby. Yeah. 
for on every level. Like a, it's it's like night and day. It's crazy. And then also very very CPU clock speed sensitive. Like it doesn't really matter how many cores you have. I mean, it matters in terms of how many you know engines you can spin up to answer requests and things like that. But in terms of actually satisfying one request as fast as possible, it's all about clock speed. And very much so. Like we saw very pretty much a linear increase in uh, speed with uh, just throwing more gigahertz at Ruby. So I, I think there's a lot of ways to look at performance. One ways I, I, I definitely want to get a benchmark routine into Discourse so people can maybe throw it around. Is like look how look how fast my server is. Here's my Discourse benchmark number. They don't even care about Discourse, right? <laughs> it's just one of those benchmark numbers that you know geeks love to throw around. I would love that. And so would it's it be nice its own too. gem or its own? Rails project, or would it be part of Discourse itself? Well, this is just an idea I had, and we've been working on a lot of stuff, like getting the partners up, so this hasn't really come to fruition, but this is something I really want to get to, is this idea of getting the culture of Discourse as a benchmark app. Like, you want to benchmark how fast your server is? Well, run the Discourse suite, right? And see how fast your server really is. And it's real code, you know, it's retrieving topics and doing rendering stuff, so it's like a real benchmark of real live production Ruby code. Another weirdness we ran into and maybe your community can help with this. We had real trouble virtualizing Discourse without losing like just 20 to 40% of performance. And we, we don't know why. The first server we built was an eight core Sandy Bridge Xeon. And the, and it had 128 gigs of memory. This is like a $9,000 server. I mean, you can buy fancier servers, but this is pretty fancy, right? And our idea was, oh, we'll just virtualize and we'll have a lot of instances of, of Discourse. And we sat down to do it and we used uh, Zen and uh, I can't remember the name of the other one. It's a real common virtualization platform. But anyway, the two main virtualization platforms. And we just couldn't do better than like 20% perf loss. Wow. And and sometimes up to 40%. We were really shocked about this. And I don't still don't really know why that is. But anyway, we, we switched back to, to bare metal and had good results. So th- there's a lot of, like I said, low-hanging fruit with performance stuff in Ruby. And we're still figuring some of it out. Uh, aside from, from performance, has there been any other um, like big problem or big challenge with Ruby? Well, I, I would say we're, we're kind of anal about performance. Like, I think a lot of people don't care about performance as much as we do. Coming back, again, from Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange background, like, I, I really like to see pages render in under 50 milliseconds. That's not always easy to do in Ruby. Right. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of people are like, oh, 100 milliseconds, who cares? 200 milliseconds through. As long as it loads in under half second, we're good. Right. I don't really think like that. So, and you'll notice when you install Discourse, we have a mini profiler that comes up. Like it shows you how long pages take to render. It's a little chiclet in the upper left hand corner. Right, mm-hmm. upper left or upper right. Let me go to meta and see. But that's how serious we are about it. Like we built, you know, we pulled across this thing we had in the .NET world that shows us uh, uh, load times. So right. I have to ask if you're if you're really concerned about performance, does putting a lot of this stuff into Ember and JavaScript does that help it or hurt it? It helps it in the sense that you're you're scaling performance across end clients, right? And those end clients are getting faster and faster and faster, even though they're moving to tablets and stuff like that. I mean, the iPad 4 is twice as fast as the iPad 3, and that's in less than a year. And most desktops and laptops are absurdly powerful now. I mean, you have more powerful... I mean, people don't even know what... That's why nobody upgrades their PCs anymore, Macs, because who cares? You already have uh, everything you could possibly need and more. So I think it makes sense, like... The, the the packaging of the app in JavaScript is really a reaction to this world where you must download a binary app for every device you own. Mm-hmm. I think this is a huge step backward <laughs> over the thing we built on the web, which is, hey, you go to a website, you don't have to deploy anything, you don't have to think about what version is, you don't have to think about updating it, it just works, right? Now we're back to this world where what version of the app do you have in binary for the platform that you're running, 
Mm-hmm. So that's more of a, it's not necessarily a performance reaction, it's a reaction to, I want to deliver one experience that works really well on all your devices that you don't have to think about updating. It just works and it works the same on all your devices. Because that also makes me crazy about apps. There's all these subtle differences in the way they work on different platforms versus, say, the website. I mean, it's nuts. I mean, it's a daily struggle for me. I have a blog entry planned about this, but I, I think the whole app model is really broken. And I'm not really convinced that's actually the future, like a lot of venture capitalists think it is. Yeah, I have one more question along these lines, though, and that is, I mean, you're talking about performance and basically the speed to render stuff to the screen. And and I get the scaling because, you know, you make the client do some of the work with JavaScript. But uh, have you found that uh, rendering on the server versus rendering in the client is necessarily faster or slower most of the time? We're really careful about how we do it. So we've actually seen really good performance. Okay. I know 37signals famously said that, you know, they had bad results with it. But uh, you got to look at sort of the trends, like where we are with performance versus where, where we're going to be. And like the place where you have an obscene amount of performance and continuing to have more and more obscene amounts of performance is the, the, the client. And browsers are getting faster. I mean, just look at like JavaScript engine speed over the last three years. I mean, it's crazy. The graph is crazy. Now, eventually, that's going to level out where they, they've optimized everything and they can't optimize anymore. But you want to sort of be ahead of the curve in terms of where things are going. And I think betting on JavaScript is an extremely one of the safest bets that there is. I mean, is there even a more competitive space for performance than JavaScript on the client? I mean, it's incredibly competitive. I mean, you know, you have three or four major browsers all competing to be as fast as possible. Um, although, you know, Safari has the WebKit engine, they use a different JavaScript engine. So you have multiple competing JavaScript engines that are pretty much guaranteed to be faster. And, you know, what are you going to do with all this performance? You have supercomputers on your desktops and laptops, and your servers don't necessarily have that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, It makes a lot of sense to scale stuff to the client and let the client do a lot more work. So we talked about betting on Ruby and betting on JavaScript. One of the things that surprised me when you first launched was that people had an adverse reaction to you choosing Postgres. They were like, why Postgres? How um, has that reaction changed? Well, I think what people were reacting to was essentially we're competing with PHP. So a lot of the decisions we have to make, some, some of the performance stuff, we need to be as good as PHP, which is itself a depressing thing to even say, but deploying to, to <laughs> shared, shared hosting. The one thing you're going to have on shared hosting, it's like what I call server herpes. Is like it's going to have MySQL, it's going to have PHP, and it's going to be supported, right? That's the one thing you can kind of guarantee. Every server has herpes. It's going to have that stuff. But it's not going to have Ruby. It's not going to have Postgres. So people that were complaining were complaining that, look, my provider doesn't really, they support MySQL, uh, but they don't support Postgres. And we're trying to change the world. We're trying to say, look, you know, Discourse is so good. It's so compelling of a killer app in terms of you get it for free. <laughs> it's a great experience. It's, you know, like a super nice, you know, super well-maintained target. Who doesn't want to target at least somewhere close to them they can go to, right? You'll be motivated to say, look, provider, get off your ass and support Postgres because we need it because there's this awesome app that uh, named Discourse that uses it. So we need it really bad. So it's not just an abstract desire. It's a desire based on a killer app. And those those tend to move things forward a lot faster than just random whining about, oh, I wish we could use Postgres. So we're trying to build a killer app that gets people to use Ruby, that gets people to get the right dependencies in place, that moves Ruby forward, that moves Postgres forward, and makes a better environment. So you don't have to, oh, well, I got to pick a PHP app because that's the only thing my provider will actually support. So what can I run that's on PHP? It's a terrible way to make decisions. Another thing we talked about briefly was versioning. Discourse is still in sort of a pre or a beta or something. When when do you envision being ready for prime time? Well, I have this big, deep belief, almost 
a lot of my beefs, beliefs are philosophical and or religious that programmers have this idea that everything you build is super reusable. Like I built a calendar component. It's the most reusable cal calendar component in the world. Everyone can use it. But they haven't actually gone through the exercise of using it in three different scenarios with three different audiences. That's what I call the rule of three. It's this old programming axiom. It was in Robert Glass's book. It's been in a couple different books. It needs more currency because I think it's a great, great concept that we're trying to deploy with three partners. We start with How to Geek. The next one's coming up. I can't say who it is, but it's going to be awesome. And then the third partner. So once we've deployed with three different audiences that we support on our own servers, so we, we, we're living and breathing the pain alongside these partners, right? We, we guarantee a good experience. And if they don't look good, we don't look good. Because when you see a failed WordPress blog, do you blame WordPress? You go, oh, WordPress sucks because I see this blog that isn't very good. And, well, obviously that's WordPress's fault. Well, on Stack Exchange, that was our fault because we hosted all these forums. I mean, excuse me, all the Q&A sites. So if there was a failed one, it reflected poorly on the engine, it reflected poorly on the company, but that doesn't work in the world of open source. Nobody blames a project for a failed uh, site. <laughs> so we want to host them on our server so we have that sense of we're, you know, we're walking alongside you and there was only one set of footsteps because we were carrying you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so the really important follow-up question to that is when can we start using discourse for the Ruby Rugs parlay list? Well, theoretically, immediately. I mean, for, for people that are very technical, that are mm -hmm. comfortable. I mean, our, 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 so we launched February 5th to the mm -hmm. public. We've been working about eight or nine months before that. Um, it was certainly rough, but it's getting much, much better. Every day, uh, we're moving the block. This is like building a pyramid, right? So how do you build a pyramid? You move these massive stone blocks and you pile them on top of each other. It's like, well, how the hell does that happen, right? Well, the way that happens is you take a massive stone block and you push it you know, a certain number of feet per day. <laughs> and you I, keep I, doing that. <laughs> I thought it was levitation. The, well, the right, but I mean, yeah. it, it's the immense amount of work that's necessary to get this done. But, but it's getting better every day. It's it's better. Like our our install guide is better. Our our mm -hmm. configuration is better. Our feedback on the admin page about like we try to detect certain failure conditions and tell you about them on the admin page. Like tap you on the shoulder, and go, hey, by the way, you haven't configured Facebook logins. You probably should do that. Or hey, by the way, it looks like Sidekick isn't running at all. <laughs> like we've observed the problems that people had and tried to put the feedback into the software. So they know these things are happening. So I would say if you want to use discourse now, so speaking again to the audience of, you know, hardcore Ruby developers that presumably listen to this podcast, first of all, I would like everybody to look and get a sense of like, how does the project work? You know, you know, raw SQL issue aside, like, does it make sense? Because really, this is a JavaScript app. The Ruby part is not the big part. I mean, it's important. But we don't use a huge swath of Rails, which is all about the UI. It's really an Ember app. Ember is a JavaScript framework. These emerging frameworks for building apps in the browser using JavaScript, a ball of JavaScript that comes down. If you view source on discourse, you get essentially nothing. You get <laughs> what we have to feed to Google, what must be there, plus download this giant JavaScript file. <laughs> right? That's the app. So I'm yeah, curious. I'm not so curious about the Rails. I'm curious about how Ruby people are going to react to Ember. Honestly, I think Ember is, is a, a bigger issue in terms of like how are people going to adapt to it do they like it do they not like it because that's essentially how the the the, the big blocks get moved is, is a lot of ember on the client yeah and so chuck you need to have jeff back on the javascript jabber to talk about I, using ember i was actually going to ask him after the show so. <laughs> parlay is a private list does discourse have a way to have uh, private lists that don't show up in in google or for random people 
There is. I mean, a lot of this stuff is emerging because we're trying okay. to service the partners first because our, our primary goal is to make sure the three partners, the rule of three, are ecstatically happy with this course. Now, along the way, we do try to satisfy requests from other forums that have popped up. Like one that popped up, did you guys see the news article about this game company that released a pirated version of its own game? <laughs> and this is a game, it's a game about game development. That's what, it's a simulation of game development. And what they did was they patched their game and, and created a cracked, air quote, cracked version that when you went in and started playing, after a certain while, all your games would be pirated nonstop and you couldn't make any money. <laughs> and this is the version. <laughs> Told you so. <laughs> this is yeah. the version that the pirates would download and they, they had no recourse. Like eventually all their stuff would start getting pirated and they had no recourse and like they'd go out of business because they weren't selling any games anymore because it was all getting pirated. This went like hyper viral. I saw this so many places. I mean, like Tim O'Reilly retweeted it at one point. Like it just got huge currency. And they have a forum and they were an early adopter of discourse. So it's called forum.greenheartgames.com. And uh, it got to be a really, really popular forum. Like the most popular forum we've had on the engine. There were a hundred new topics a day for a while. It's kind of calmed down a little. But it was it was really blowing up. And we were talking closely to those guys. Say, look, you know, and I was on there every day trying to read everything and see what's happening and observe the behavior. And one of the cool things about it was, and I couldn't believe this, I was actually quite shocked because human beings have the propensity to complain about everything. That's the first thing that happens. Like you expect complaints. It could be, you know, the best thing in the world and then somebody's going to be in there complaining about it. But there were almost no complaints about the forum software. And I like, couldn't believe this. It's like, wow, the volume these guys have, nobody's really bitching about how, how what is this terrible software you're making us use? And why is it so weird? And why does it do the things it does? And I just expect that on any forum now. <laughs> well, especially when you switch to discourse, there's going to be a lot of complaints uh, from friction. But it, it worked really well. And, and the only problem they really had was massive numbers of duplicate topics. So we sort of redoubled our efforts on the detecting duplicate topics front and merging topics and trying to tell people. We have a just-in-time thing that pops up when you start typing that tries to tell you, hey, look, your topic looks a lot like these other topics that already exist and have you know 20 replies. And they, they came to us with some other requests that they needed, and we prioritized all that stuff because we want the people, you know, doing the early adopter work to have a really, really good experience, and we want to fix any conditions that you're running into. So I would really, you know, if you want to set this up, I would really encourage you to do it. Now, if you don't want public visibility, I don't think you, there's the ability to put a password on the entire site at this time, which is kind of ghetto, I know. We use that actually for the beta, the private beta. But we're actually are looking at that. We're also looking at a model where you can't see it until you create an account. And there's already a way to whitelist like certain email addresses and stuff like that. So there might be a way to do what you want to do today. But if not, you know, we'll come to Meta Discourse and, you know, look for the topics that discuss that and chime in and say, hey, you know, we want to reform, but we can't because we need X feature. And, you know, we, we evaluate that stuff all the time. Mm. Okay, so one quick, quick question. Uh, discourse is open source, but when you rolled it out, it was already you already had something working. Uh, you had a lot of the features there. What went into the decision? At what point to release it into the world? Well, I have a really clear viewpoint on this, which is that working code attracts people that like to write code. Concepts attract people that just like to talk. And those are not helpful people to have on a project, in my experience. The, you want people that are actively willing to go in, you know, rip out code, put in code. And to do that, they have to see a functioning thing, something that looks like they could 
you know, get benefit from change and have a meaningful effect on the project and things like that. Whereas if you're in this conceptual stage of you don't have anything built, it's just a bunch of talking and not so much the doing. <laughs> and so I'm a big believer in having a really good prototype that functionally works, but can be missing pieces. And, you know, from my perspective, people tell me discourse looks very complete, but in my mind, it's wildly incomplete. Because I think mentally I'm comparing it with the last four years of what we did on Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange, which is totally unfair because we spent four years building that thing. But mentally, I'm like, this is a fraction of what I want it to be. But it's still useful. And like, we use it every day. We dog food it. We've dog fooded it forever. Uh, we try to, you know, I believe deeply in this idea that, you know, you, you build for yourself first. And, you know, you're going to keep yourself happier than you are anyone else because just that's how people work. And you got to live the pain along with your, your, your clients and your customers and your audience. And we definitely, definitely try to do that. And I, I can't participate on every forum. Like there's another forum on, uh, Soylent. Have you guys heard about this? There, I love, one of the things I love about discourse is, you know, it's a rainbow system. It's supposed to be for everybody from, I don't know, white supremacists to, you know, every special interest under the sun. It's a rainbow. And they started this site. It's this guy who he, he, he decided he wanted to eat the same food every day. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to explain this. He, he wanted like a standard meal he could eat that was like in liquid form that he didn't have to think about that was cheap. And he could just, you know, gulp down the solution every day for every meal <laughs> for the rest it, of his life. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like Neil Gaiman only wearing black so he doesn't have to figure out what he should wear every day. Kind of like that. Kind of like yeah. that. And I'm, I'm not sure I entirely agree with this because, I mean, hamburgers are pretty awesome, right? But I, I, I think it's awesomely geeky, right? Because he's figuring out, like, exactly the combination of nutrients he needs. And this could be dangerous because you're eating the same thing every day. Although I guess that's what my cats do, technically. <laughs> I don't really think about it this way, but they eat the same kibble all the time and nothing bad has happened to the cats. So maybe this works for humans, too. Well, you don't see what they eat when they go out. <laughs> well, these cats don't go out, so okay, they're they're not seeing anything. So if you go to discourse.soylent.me, you'll see this forum, and it's all about these, you know, somewhat crazy, but but crazy in a, in in a fun way, <laughs> not in a tinfoil hat way of people that are coming up with, you know, how do we build the solution that we can all can eat every day around the world, and you know, it's cheaper, it's more, you know, effective, it doesn't harm the environment as much, and you know, plus it's named Soylent, which is awesome because that's from the movie Soylent Green. <laughs> I thought that was a very, very clever way to Which you're it. about to spoil with the punchline, right? No, no, no. No, I won't, actually. <laughs> okay. You guys can look that up, but that's a classic movie with Charlton Heston. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, it sounds like it's time for picks, Chuck. Josh, why don't you start us off? Uh, because I don't have any picks. Avdi, why don't you start us off? <laughs> All right. I think just one today. This spring, I got an inexplicable urge to start running again. Uh, I say inexplicable because throughout my life running has been nothing but misery for me. It's, it's not something I, I think about like in terms of a fun thing to do, which has a lot to do with the fact that I have asthma. But I don't know. I got this urge. I started doing it and I've been doing, I guess, barefoot style running. I'm not actually barefoot yet. I, I've been using some minimalist running sandals, but I have to say having, uh, used, having sort of totally rejiggered my stride based on some stuff in the book barefoot running step by step running is like 50 percent less misery than it has been before i started changing my stride to to match a, a barefoot style so um yeah barefoot running i guess that's my pick i think it's funny that uh, you basically said the cup is half as empty as it was before yeah <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to get too enthused about running because you know running <laughs> all right katrina what are your picks 
My pick today is Cal Newport. He's a mathematician, software developer, author, person, blogger. I'm specifically going to pick an article that he wrote a while back, probably way over a year ago, about getting creative things done. Uh, and one of the most important concepts in this article for me was the idea that you can when you have a good process that works, you should focus on that process, not on your progress on completing or moving towards some goal. So I just thought that was really interesting. So I wanted to share that. Awesome. I've got one pick that I want to pick really quickly, and that is The Fred Factor. It's a book by Mark Sanborn. And basically, it talks about a mailman and several other people who kind of went above and beyond the call of duty in their jobs and in in life in general, you know, people that just cared about other people and, and really become awesome contributors to, to the people in their lives. And so, uh, I, I'm going to highly recommend that book. And I'm really hoping that we can, uh, inspire a, a few people who are, who are good people to just kind of become great people by reading the book. It's a real short read. So no big deal. Uh, Jeff, what are your picks? I have one pick. It's a self-help book and self-help books are notoriously unreliable and, one of the things I thought was cool about this book is uh, this guy on the internet, uh, he said he had, he had read 340 self-help books because he's insane. I thought that was great. That's why I love the internet. There's somebody who's going to go there and read 340 of these books. And his conclusion was that 95% of them were just total bullshit. <laughs> and I think that's correct. That sounds correct, right? That sounds correct. But the book he did recommend, I, I thought was amazing. Like I went out and bought it and read it and I thought it was amazing. It's called 59 Seconds. Think a little, change a lot. And the difference in this book is it's all based on science, meaning all these things that make you more productive, they actually find studies citing, like, you know, why this works, how this works. There's data behind it. And it's really, really interesting. And it, it made me think a lot about sort of how I do things and why I do things. And in a way that wasn't just some random person giving me advice, but based on, you know, actual science and data. And I thought that was really cool. And if you're interested, it's definitely worth checking out. I, I pulled a few things in and changed the way I behave based on it. Awesome. All right. Well, it's been great having you on the show. And there are definitely some things that you talked about that I'm going to want to maybe explore a little more deeply. Is there a good place for people to follow you and even get in touch with you if they have questions? Well, I would say if it's about discourse, go to meta.discourse.org. That's where we have all these discussions about, you know, why discourse works, how discourse works, what should we should we do to change it. And then, of course, the GitHub repo has all the steps for, we have a Vagrant image that makes it really easy to get started. We have an advanced guide if you're hardcore and you want to install everything manually. So, and of course, the source code is all available there. Our latest check-ins, you know, every, we're letting it all hang out, so to speak. So nothing is hidden. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show again. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah, it was really fun. Thanks, guys. <laughs> 